0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Well, I thought that as Aaron and I give you an update on our work in Minnesota, that we might spend the first part of our time together in reflection. As Mark mentioned, and Toby mentioned, it's been nine years. I think it's been more like nine and a half, but I think we also can all agree that twenty twenty counted for at least two. And so so let's just say ten, okay? Let's just round it up. Ten years. And I thought there are some stories, well, many stories that we're taking back with us, but there are a few that are our favorite stories. And I wanted to share those with you. Maybe you've heard them before, but it's probably been a while. And I thought I'd share about the beginning of the work that Aaron and I began in Minnesota that nine and a half years ago. When we first got there, I put an ad on Craigslist for free Bible studies, which I thought, that's good advertising, it's free, and so who, who wouldn't want a free Bible study? So we put that in, and a few days later, I was receiving text messages from somebody who uh, said that they saw the ad and they were interested, but... Uh, they were in college, and they were at the U of M, and they had a roommate, and their roommate, they feared, was perhaps possessed by a demon and uh, was reading from the book of Satan, and uh, they, they wanted me to come to the dorm and do an exorcism, and so <laughs> they said, you better bring some crucifixes and some holy water. So I messaged back, and I said, well, I don't really have those things, but I do have a Bible and I'd love to study with you about what the Bible says concerning demons and crucifixes and holy water. Would you like to do a Bible study? And they said, well, no, because the Bible's not very reliable. And I said, well, actually, it is. (laughs) And so we can study about that, too. There's lots of great evidences for the reliability of the New Testament documents for the Bible as a whole. And they stopped messaging me at that point, and so I sort of concluded that that was probably a, a prank, maybe a joke. Um, so, that's okay. We went to bed that evening, and my phone buzzed at around 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was a text message from somebody saying that they saw my Bible study ad, and they were interested in a Bible study, that they had just seen it, and they wanted to study as soon as possible. It sounded very urgent. So I looked at it in the middle of the night, and I said, Ah. And put, it, put it back down. I was like, it's probably another joke. And then I woke up the next morning, and I got another message from the same number, saying, I, sorry, I'm sorry, i sorry, I messaged so late last night, I really, really want to study the Bible. So I said, well, okay, maybe this is something. And so this person said that their name was Zane, and uh, they would like to meet. And I said, well, let's meet at a coffee shop. And so... We set up a, a date and a location, and uh, at this time, well, still, Aaron and I, we just have one car, so Aaron had another engagement to be at with a local congregation, so she dropped me off at the, the coffee shop, and I walked in, and I was looking for Zane, and I looked over, and I saw at one of the tables, there was this um, African man sitting with about four Bibles in front of him, all open at the same time. And he, he looked to be in the midst of a very important sermon inside of his own mind. And he was going here and going there. And so I said, that must be Zane. So I w- walked up to this gentleman and I said, hi, I'm Alex. You must be Zane. And he looked at me like I was demon-possessed. And he said, what? <laughs> no, I'm not Zane. And I <laughs> said, okay, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Turned around, scratched my head for a second, and I was like, Hi. I don't know what to do. And then walking through the door was this tall African woman, and she walked up to me and said, You must be Alex. I'm Zane. (laughs) And I said, Oh, you're a woman. (laughs) And then I was very off balance, because I didn't know what the rules were supposed to be at this point with me doing Bible studies with women by myself. I said, Well, we're in a public place. It's a coffee shop. It's probably okay. I don't know what Erin's going to think when she picks me up, but... Let's do a Bible study. So we sat down and did a Bible study, and that was our first Bible study in Minnesota. And three months after that, uh, Zane was baptized and was the the first baptism we had in Minnesota. And still, Zane today is faithful, and she's always gone to church with us. And it's amazing to think about that, because when we met her, she had a, a little girl that was two years old named Amarachi. And next week, Amarachi turns 12, and the only church Amarachi's ever really known is the church that met in our house. And the only preacher Amarachi's ever heard is me. And so now they're on their journey to find a new church, a new church community, now that we're not meeting in our house anymore. When we first got to Minnesota, there was a family within one of the local congregations, uh, the Davidson family, Kenton Christie. And they had heard about our coming, and they were very excited, very encouraging, enthusiastic. And so when we arrived, they were, uh, I would say, the most helpful, and they've been the longest friendship that we've held in Minnesota. And one day, uh, Kent invited me to go play disc golf with him uh, and a couple of other guys. And one of the guys that Kent also had invited along was somebody named Michael Finner. And Michael and I got to talking, and we decided that we should get together at a coffee shop, do some Bible studies. And a few years later, uh, Michael and his wife Bethany, they started coming to our house church. And Michael and Bethany are probably our best friends in Minnesota. So it was interesting how the circle of connections connected itself. There was a lot of connections we met through using meetup.com as a resource to invite people who wanted to come to Bible study. I didn't know about Meetup, but I found out because uh, Robin and Chrissy Vick used that in Scotland. So we saw that they used it, and then when we first got there, Tommy Maxwell was in Scotland as well, and he had contacted me, and he said I should try it. So I did. And over the years, we met lots of people through Meetup. In 2019, in the summer, there was a lady coming to the meetup study. Her name was Jin, and one time, just once, uh, there was a friend of hers named Maria that came, and it was very brief. And I didn't get to know Maria very well on that one occasion, and I had forgotten her name shortly after that, and. Uh, year and a half later, I got a letter in the mail from Maria saying that, saying that she uh, was desperately looking for me, desperately looking for our church, but only had my address, didn't have my phone number. <clears throat> and that showed up, uh, I believe, in, in November of 2020. And at a time that was, seemed very discouraging, uh, this letter dropped out of nowhere saying, I'm looking for you guys. I'm looking for your church. So we reached out to her, and a month later, she and her family were coming to our congregation, and we got to know them very well, and I've been able to journey alongside them in their faith. And now that we're not meeting at our house anymore, Mark and Maria are going to church with the Davidson family. And so, again, the connections that seem to circle have made an impact on me because we're not orchestrating those connections, are we? It's it's the Lord. It's his spirit moving within our lives and within our communities. He's orchestrating those connections. When we first started Meetup, one of the earliest studies that I had was with a man named Larry. And uh, he was a single man and showed up at the Bible study. It was very attentive, took notes. He was a great note taker, Uh, studied really hard. He seemed to Just take to Bible study. And so after I'd met with him for a month or two, after we were leaving the coffee shop one day, I I just said to him, I said, hey, you're not going to church anywhere, right? He said, no, no, I don't go to church anywhere. I said, well, you should come to our house and try out our church. And he said, well, to be honest with you, uh, I've never been much of an early morning person. I just can't get myself out of bed in time. I said, well, that's okay. We don't start until like 11, 11.30, 12, you know, just come. And he was like, oh, really? He's like, well, you know, by the time I wake up and it's 11, I'm hungry, I want lunch. I said, that's all right. We start out with a fellowship meal at lunchtime. So you just come and have some lunch and we'll feed you. It's pretty good. My wife cooks. She's a great cook. She's a great cook. And then he said, okay, I'm going to be up front with you. I just have a hard time around groups of people. Lots of people just kind of stress me out. I can't handle that. I said, boy, you are in luck, my friend, because we got about four people that meet in my house right now. You can have all the space you want. And he looked down and scratched his head for a second and said, all right, I'll come. And he showed up every week for the next six, seven years. Well, one time, after a meetup study, I was at the coffee shop, and I was taking some online courses, completing my master's degree in biblical studies, and so I had a pile of books that I'd sat on a table, I was like, okay, you know, meetups done, I'm going to do some Bible study now for school, and uh, sat my stuff down and went and got another coffee, and I came back, and there was a couple of ladies sitting at the table, and it was a big table, and they said, well, can we share the table with you? And I said, sure, and one of the ladies, her name was Tara. And she said, those books look really, really interesting. And the book sitting right on top was a, a theology book on astral prophecy. And so I was like, well, <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to get into astral theological prophecy with you right now. But uh, yeah, it is really interesting, you know. And so let, let's, uh, let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about why I'm reading this book. And so she was very interested. And she said, your church sounds interesting. I'd like to visit sometime. Two weeks later, she showed up and then kept coming every week after that for years. And she was baptized uh, in January 2021. And she and Larry are engaged to be married. And uh, they both live up in Grand Rapids now, which is three or four hours north of the Twin Cities. And uh, Larry's works in uh, uh, computers and technology, but he's also beginning some courses in theology. He's like, I don't know what that will lead to, but I think I'd like to learn more. And so he's studying Bible online. One of my favorite recent stories is hearing about how each of them went about finding a new church in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Uh, To their surprise, not everybody believes the same things that we believe. And so they went to one church together. And uh, Larry said, you know, I wasn't so sure about the the teaching and the preaching. uh, But they were very nice, you know, very hospitable. And Tara said, yeah, they invited us out to lunch. It was great. And so the next Sunday they went to a different church. And Larry said, this was great. That church, that was one of the best sermons I'd ever heard. And Tara said, yeah, but they didn't even invite us out to lunch. <laughs> so I said, yeah, good teaching and good food. It's an important combination. We had it at our church, and so you might not find that combination everywhere. Different things are important to different people. There are lots of stories that we bring back with us to Minnesota, uh, from Minnesota, The last Sunday that we had meeting in our house was at the end of November. And the message that I wanted to give to uh, all of our people was a message about being a church community. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how can that help them as they find another church community? And the overall idea that I wanted them to walk away with was the idea that commitment requires sacrifice. And that's always true in every part of life. Because if you're going to choose something, that means you're not choosing another thing. You only have so much time, you only have so many resources. And so commitment requires sacrifice, and you could say the more sacrifice then, the more commitment commitment that you have. And so what were the kinds of commitments or sacrifices required for commitment? Because without commitment, church communities won't work. It doesn't work without commitment. And so I said, first and foremost, it's actually a sacrifice just being there, just being with the church community. And I think that sometimes we can downplay that. But if you have somebody who's going to church once a week for an hour, that's, 52 hours a year that they're trying to be a part of a community. And that's not nothing. That's something that's worth acknowledging as being worthwhile because what commitment creates is based on your time and effort that you put into whatever you're committed to. And so, how do you feel connected to a community? It's through time and effort. And so you don't understand what's happening in the background just by being present with other people who are present. And I think it's easy to downplay the idea that just going to church you know, isn't enough. It's like, well, fair enough. Maybe just going to church isn't enough for higher goals of spiritual maturity that we're striving for. But it is something, and it is a great start. And if everybody was there every week, that would have made a big difference at our congregation. And so being there is a sacrifice of your time. It's a sacrifice of effort. And by being there, you're contributing to familiarity that everybody has with the group that is together, with the community. And familiarity creates security. And security creates openness and vulnerability. And openness and vulnerability creates a deeper relationship. And that's how church communities grow and thrive. I told them that to be committed, you have to choose suffering. And that's sort of a strange one to think about, because we know that suffering does happen. We have biblical passages that tell us the inevitability of suffering and how suffering leads to our sanctification. But to choose suffering is something different than just suffering because everybody's going to suffer believers will suffer non-believers will suffer but your mindset and the way in which it impacts your spiritual growth is totally different if you're choosing to suffer if you're choosing to use your suffering for the good of God's kingdom for the good of the community I said one thing we don't often think about is that we have to suffer one another There's a lot of personalities that come together at church. Personalities that would probably not be friends outside of Jesus Christ. And it's okay to acknowledge that. It's like we're not here because we always get along or because we think we provide good company. We're here because we have a common faith in Jesus Christ and he's called us together. That's what the church is. The ecclesia, the called out ones. And you have to suffer your own weaknesses in that process. Because if there are other people who have annoying tendencies and annoying personalities, that means there's probably something annoying about you too. And you have to suffer those weaknesses. You have to acknowledge that those weaknesses exist. And there are theological passages that speak to that as well. Paul speaks to us in his epistles, calls us... Clays jar clays. And then I told them that when you're in a church community, the first thing you should do is to be indebted to that community. And so you let yourself be indebted to the words of encouragement and the words of admonition that are given to you. And then that way, now you have something to pay back you be indebted to people's hospitality. So now you have something to pay back. You let somebody host you. You let somebody gift you. And now it's your turn to give back. And it begins that reciprocity, begins those positive feedback loops that are necessary for a community, for a church community especially. And of course, if commitment requires sacrifice, you can't talk about sacrifice with out talking about the giving of your money, the giving of your labor. And really, money is just a, it's just a placeholder. It represents time and labor that you spent doing something. And so when you are giving, you're giving of your time and labor, whether it's in the form of skills volunteered or in the form of money or both. Some of these might sound pretty basic to you guys, because Northside, I believe, is a strong, healthy, growing church community. And so a lot of you do these things without thinking about it. But when you encounter unchurched people, they don't even think about these things. They have to be taught. They have to be trained. They have to be exemplified. And I think that what our church was that met in our house was somewhat of a training ground, somewhat of a stepping stone. There are many people who came to our church who would not go to a church. They just wouldn't do it. But... To them, it felt like going to someone's house wasn't church. It was church, but to them it wasn't. And that allowed them to learn what church actually is. And I think sometimes we can think that there's something extraordinary going on in a house church because, well, it's a house and it's not a building. But actually, the same extraordinary thing is happening in both locations, and that's God's people are growing and connecting and thriving. But different contexts may provide different needs that people need to make the next step of their faith. And so there was a lot of people we met, a lot of people, whose next step couldn't have been going to a church building that was too big of a step, but they could go to a church home. And because they took that step, it allowed them to learn that a church home can be in a building. And so now they're looking for that church home. They weren't looking for that before, and now they are looking for that. They know what it is. They know the power of the Spirit that it provides. As Aaron and I reflect upon these last nine and a half years, There's two life lessons that I think we take away from what we've experienced. And the first one that stands out to me is, more than you would think, there are unsolvable problems. And I would say at the beginning of ministry, I wouldn't have thought there were that many unsolvable problems. I was younger, I was more optimistic. (laughs) I was like, there's got to be a solution to all these things. It's like, if only this. Then you start to learn a little bit more about the peskiness of people's free will. It's like, oh, I guess there are some unsolvable problems. Ten years later, now I'm pretty sure there are many, many unsolvable problems. And that's helpful to realize. It's not pessimistic to say that there are many unsolvable problems in life. There are many unsolvable problems in people's lives that you run into in your own life. It's not pessimistic. It's important to just acknowledge that reality. Because then you can more properly approach the unsolvable problem. And so how do you approach unsolvable problems? And this goes into the second lesson then that we take away as important for our lives is what's the, what's the metric that we should be using as we evaluate our own efforts and our own labor? And there are metrics that we're used to thinking about, that we're used to hearing. Uh, we had six baptisms. We met in our house for church over 400 times. I studied individually with people at coffee shops over 2,000 times. But those metrics are only so useful. The most useful metric is what I call the metric of helpfulness. And so when you encounter people who have unsolvable problems, you can't say, well, if they're baptized, that will solve the problem. Or if they come to church, you know, then that will solve the problem. It's like, well, no, it won't. But it could help. And so being helpful is the metric that we had to reorient our thinking around. I would set goals for myself to say, well, I want to do this much in this amount of time. Bible studies, meeting people, baptisms. And that never really worked out very well, those kinds of goals. But if I changed the metric and I thought, well, what would be helpful to this specific person right now? then things would come to me, things that I couldn't plan out five years ahead of time, things that would come to me in the moment that were helpful in that moment. So gauging our efforts as a church and the work that we do on earth for the promoting of God's kingdom I think is best seen and measured through the metric of helpfulness. Have I been helpful to this person? And you can more easily say, in a given act, yes. That was helpful for them. Did it solve their problems? No, it didn't solve their problems. But it was helpful. I think theologically, we would look at passages that say, well, it was a cup of water when someone was thirsty, right? It was an extra tunic when someone needed clothing. It was a meal when someone was hungry. And some of those things are still literal. But I think you get the idea the metric of helpfulness. And I think that Aaron and I, when we went to Minnesota, there was certainly an idea and a plan that we had to grow a congregation that would outgrow the house church, that would multiply its efforts into more house churches, which would outgrow those house churches. A very exciting and explosive adventure. But I think Uh, the Lord was just fine using that incentive to bring us to where he brought us so that he could use us to be helpful to the people that we met. Because those connections that were being made were not connections that we orchestrated. It was the Spirit working to make connections between us and people. And so because... We were there to help the people at the time that we needed to help them. Lives were changed. Many lives were changed. And so I'll end with this combination of scriptures. In Acts chapter 2, you have the beginning of the church. You have an explosive, exciting period of growth. And we have this passage that we... Kind of hold up as our ideal. Says, so then those who had received his word, verse 41, and were baptized. That day there were 3,000 souls added. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That sounds like an incredible time. I'm sure we all wish we could have been there for that moment. And I'm sure it was an incredible time. But I guarantee you it was fraught with problems. And I know it didn't last very long because otherwise we wouldn't have anything in our New Testament past the book of Acts. All the epistles, when you get into biblical studies, you're always looking for what's the occasion that this would have been written. And the occasion is always there were problems. There were issues that were dividing people and causing conflict that had to be dealt with. And even in letters that are like mostly positive, there were still some problems. And so, if there weren't, we would have the Gospels and Acts, and that's about it, and that would be the New Testament. But obviously, we have much, much more. But I like what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans, in chapter 15, verse 14. He's gone through the theological train ride with this group of people and he's given them quite the admonition and some things to really think about to take to heart and he said some hard words but in the end in chapter 15 verse 14 he said and concerning you my brethren i myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another And that's quite the optimistic view of the church even after Paul has seen the dirty laundry. Right? He's confident. He's convinced that these people who have been called out the ecclesia that they're still full of goodness. Doesn't mean they don't do bad things but He's convinced that that goodness is still there. And that's got to be because of Christ. He's convinced that they're filled with all knowledge. Now, they may say some stupid things. (laughs) Doesn't mean they're not filled with all knowledge. They're capable is what they are. They're not helpless. And they're able to admonish one another. So they don't need him to write them letters every day. They have the spirit as well they have those whom God is working and making connections with where they're at. And within that, they are able to admonish one another. And that's the work of God within his church. And so really, Paul was just confident that God would continue to do his work within his church. Paul was confident that God would take care of his church. And he has. Because despite our own weaknesses... Despite our own failings, the church is still here 2,000 years later. So I'll leave you with those thoughts, and if you'll join me in a prayer, I'd appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church, and thank you for churches, the communities that you move within to grow and to help and to sanctify and to use for your purposes that your kingdom would be done on earth. Your will would be done on earth. Your kingdom would come. And we pray, Lord, that in this process of suffering and in this process of rejoicing, in the process of being all the things that it means to be a community, that you would continue to guide us As a shepherd, to lead us with your word, to fill us with your spirit, to strengthen us in our inner man, to remind us who we are, to shine a light in the midst of darkness. We pray, Father, that you would direct our trust fully in you, that we would trust you in all things, that we would trust you with ourselves and our families, that we would trust you with each other and our community. We pray, Lord, that you would lead so many lost souls around us in this state, in this country, in the world, that you would lead them to these communities, and that you would equip these communities to bring in those who do not yet know you, those who need a stepping stone to be just one bit closer to you, And we pray that you would use us, despite our weaknesses, to accomplish that. We pray this in Jesus' name.